everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, 30 minutes of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Svela. I live in Joshua Tree, and I'm pleased to bring this program to the high desert and beyond here on Radio Free Joshua Tree. You know, there's kind of a hierarchy in mythology where you have the myths, the really important myths, the ones that are associated with uh, currently practiced religions at the very top, followed by the classics, followed by the myths of uh, smaller or perhaps more obscure communities. And somewhere in there, as you work your way down to the bottom, you get to fairy and folk tales. Now, if you listen to this program regularly, you know I object to that hierarchy. I find a great deal in fairy and folk tales that's extremely useful. In fact, Joseph Campbell said that the folk tale is the primer of the picture language of the soul, meaning that we can find the primary symbolic elements that commonly move through the psyche by taking a look at fairy and folk tales. Stories about the folk, told by the folk. And these stories, the supernatural elements, that is the mystery, the face of the unknown, and what we call fairy tales, is often called a fairy or a witch instead of a goddess. And the plot concerns us, ordinary people, and what happens to us, how the mystery shapes us and moves through our lives. Whether the characters are kings and queens and princes and princesses, or the homely miller and his daughter, these figures can be looked at as aspects of the human psyche and as aspects of each of our individual psyches. One interesting way to mine gold from a fairy tale is to consider each of the characters in turn and to find this one in yourself. To ask yourself, how am I the princess? How am I the king? How am I the frog? This is how I found the story that I want to tell you today. Uh, It's called The Princess May Blossom. And I found it because I've been following the trail of the 13th fairy recently. The 13th fairy of Sleeping Beauty and Maleficent fame. So this story, The Princess May Blossom, is in that genre. But it's probably not one that you've heard before. And it's got some very interesting turns that may surprise you. It was collected by Andrew Lang, who is a Scottish novelist and poet, who worked along with his wife, Lenore Blanche Allen, to collect over 400 fairy tales. They collected these stories from a variety of sources, including the Grimm Brothers and the Arabian Nights. This particular story, The Princess May Blossom, was originally collected by Madame Dalnoy, and Lang published 
the stories that he collected in a series of 12 books titled with Colors of the Rainbow. So the Blue Fairy books or the Red Fairy book, for example. Uh, These books were published in the years 1889 to 1910. And the story that I'm going to tell you was found in the Red Fairy book. Now, if you like fairy tales, I have to tell you, Lang's books are all in the public domain, and you can find them online. So there's a wealth of amazing stories. Lang was really fascinated by fairy tales, and at the time that he was doing his collecting, there were very few such collections in English, and the stories were largely disregarded and looked down on for their magical elements and violence. Who was supposed to read them? They were too foolish for adults and too brutal for children. This was the Victorian era, so in fact there were some educators at the time who claimed that fairy tales were harmful for kids. But Lang strongly believed otherwise. His books were very popular and he inspired others to collect stories in the decades and centuries to follow. Now, apparently, Lang did clean up the stories a little bit to make them more suitable for children, but he wasn't an outright moralist. And I came across this quote from him about why he preferred old stories over newer ones that really resonates with me. Lang says, But the 365 authors who try to write new fairy tales are very tiresome. They always begin with a little boy or girl who goes out and meets the fairies of polyanthuses and gardenias and apple blossoms, flowers and fruits and other winged things. These fairies try to be funny and fail, or they try to preach and succeed. Real fairies never preach or talk slang. At the end, the little boy or girl wakes up and finds that he has been dreaming Such are the new fairy stories. May we be preserved from all the sort of them. So on that note, here is part one of an old fairy tale, The Princess May Blossom. I invite you to sit back, relax, and take note of the details in this story that capture your attention. They're important clues to where this story may be living in your life right now. The Princess May Blossom. Once upon a time, there lived a king and a queen whose children had all died. First one, and then another, until at last only one little daughter remained. The queen was at her wit's end to find a really good nurse to take care of her and bring her up. The court herald was sent, and he blew a trumpet at every street corner and commanded all of the best nurses in the country to appear before the queen so that she might choose one for the little princess. On the appointed day, the whole palace was crowded with nurses who came from the four corners of the world to offer themselves and their services. Finally, the queen looked at them all and declared if she was ever to see half of them, they must be brought out to her one by one. As she sat in a shady wood, near the palace. This was done according to her wishes, and the nurses, after they had made their curtsy to the king and the queen, arranged themselves in a line before her so that she might choose one. 
Most of these nurses were fair and fat and charming, but there was one who was morose and ugly and spoke a strange language that nobody could understand. The queen wondered how she dared offer herself, and this morose one was told to go away, as she certainly would not get the job. On hearing this, she muttered something and passed on, but hid herself in a hollow tree from which she could see all that happened. The queen, who didn't give her another thought, chose a pretty rosy-faced nurse, but no sooner was her choice made than a snake that was hidden in the grass bit that very nurse on her foot so that she fell down as if dead. The queen was very much vexed by this accident, but she soon selected another nurse who was stepping forward when an eagle flew by and dropped a large tortoise upon her head, which was cracked in pieces like an eggshell. At this, the queen was much horrified. Nevertheless, she chose a third time, but with no better fortune, for the nurse, moving quickly, ran into the branch of a tree and blinded herself with a thorn. Ah, the queen cried out, there must be some malignant influence at work. I will not choose any more this day. She had just risen to return to the palace when she heard peals of malicious laughter behind her and turning around saw the ugly stranger whom she had dismissed, who was making very merry over the disasters and mocking everyone and especially mocking the queen. This annoyed Her Majesty very much, and she was about to order that she should be arrested when the witch, for she was a witch, with two blows from a wand, summoned a chariot of fire drawn by winged dragons and was whirled off through the air, uttering threats and cries. When the king saw this, he cried, Alas, now we are ruined indeed, for that was no other than the fairy Carabos, who has had a grudge against me ever since I was a boy and put sulfur into her porridge one day for fun. Then the queen began to cry. If I had only known who it was, she said, I would have done my best to make friends with her. Now I suppose all is lost. The king was sorry to have frightened his queen so much and proposed that they should go and hold a council to decide what was best done to avert the misfortunes that Carabos certainly meant to bring upon the little princess. So all of the counselors were summoned to the palace, and when they had shut every door and window and stuffed up every keyhole so that they might not be overheard, they talked about the affair and decided that every fairy for a thousand leagues round should be invited to the christening of the princess and that the time of the ceremony should be kept a profound secret in case the fairy Carabos should take it into her head to attend it. The queen and her ladies set to work at once to prepare presents for the fairies who were invited. For each one there was a blue velvet cloak, a petticoat of apricot satin, a pair of high-heeled shoes, some sharp needles, and a pair of golden scissors. 
Of all the fairies the queen knew, only five were able to come on the day appointed, but they began immediately to bestow gifts upon the princess. One promised that she should be perfectly beautiful. The second, that she should understand anything, no matter what, the first time it was explained to her. The third, that she should sing like a nightingale. The fourth, that she should succeed in everything she undertook. The fifth fairy was opening her mouth to speak when a tremendous rumbling was heard in the chimney and the fairy Carabos, all covered with soot, came rolling down, crying, I say that she shall be the unluckiest of the unlucky until she is twenty years old. Then the queen and all the fairies began to beg and beseech her to think of it not be so unkind to the poor little princess who had never done her any harm. But the ugly old fairy only grunted and made no answer. So the last fairy, who had not yet given her gift, tried to mend matters by promising the princess a long and happy life after the fatal time of lucklessness was over. At this, Carabos laughed maliciously, and climbed away up the chimney, leaving them all in great consternation, and especially the queen. However, she entertained the remaining fairies splendidly, and gave them beautiful ribbons, of which they are very fond, in addition to other presents. When they were going away, the oldest fairy said that they were of opinion that it would be best to shut the princess up in some place, with her waiting women, so that she might not see anyone else until she was twenty years old. So the king had a tower built for this purpose. It had no windows, so it was lighted with wax candles, and the only way into it was by an underground passage, which had iron doors only twenty feet apart, and guards were posted everywhere. The princess had been named Mayblossom, because she was as fresh and blooming as spring itself, and she grew up tall and beautiful, and everything she did and said was charming. Every time the king and queen came to see her, they were more delighted with her than before. But though she was weary of the tower, and often begged them to take her away from it, they always refused. The princess's nurse, who had never left her, sometimes told her about the world outside the tower, And though the princess had never seen anything for herself, yet she always understood exactly, thanks to the second fairy's gift. Often the king said to the queen, We were cleverer than Carabos after all. Our May Blossom will be happy in spite of her predictions. And the queen laughed until she was tired at the idea of having outwitted that nasty old fairy. They had caused the princess's portrait to be painted and sent it to all of the neighboring courts, for in four days she would have completed her twentieth year, and it was time to decide whom she should marry. The entire town was rejoicing at the thought of the princess's approaching freedom, and when the news came that King Merlin was sending his ambassador to ask her in marriage for his son, they were still more delighted. The nurse, who kept the princess informed of everything that went forward in the town, did not fail to repeat the news that so nearly concerned her, 
and gave such a description of the splendor in which the ambassador Fanfaronad would enter the town that the princess was wild to see the procession for herself. What an unhappy creature I am, she cried, to be shut up in this dismal tower as if I had committed some crime. I have never seen the sun or the stars or a horse or a monkey or a lion except in pictures. And though the king and queen tell me I am to be set free when I am twenty, I believe they only say it to keep me amused when they never mean to let me out at all. And then she began to cry. And her nurse and the nurse's daughter and the cradle rocker and the nursery maid, who all loved her dearly, cried long too for company, so that nothing could be heard but sobs and sighs. It was a scene of woe. When the princess saw that they all pitied her, she made up her mind to have her own way. So she declared that she would starve herself to death if they did not find some means of letting her see Fanfaronade's grand entry into the town. If you really love me, she said, you will manage it somehow or other, and the king and queen need never know anything about it. Then the nurse and all the others cried harder than ever, and said everything they could think of to turn the princess from her idea. But the more they said, the more determined she was. And at last they consented to make a tiny hole in the tower on the side that looked toward the city gates. After scratching and scraping all day and all night, they presently made a hole through which they could, with great difficulty, push a very slender needle. And out of this the princess looked at the daylight, for the first time. She was so dazzled and delighted by what she saw that there she stayed, never taking her eyes away from the people for a single minute, until presently the ambassador's procession appeared in sight. At the head of it rode Fanfaronade himself upon a white horse, which pranced and jingled its bells to the sound of the trumpets. Nothing could have been more splendid than the ambassador's attire. His coat was nearly hidden under an embroidery of pearls and diamonds. His boots were solid gold, and from his helmet floated scarlet plumes. At the sight of him, the princess lost her wits entirely and determined that Fanfaronade and nobody else would she marry. It is quite impossible, she said, that his master should be half as handsome and delightful. I am not ambitious, and having spent all my life in this tedious tower, anything, even a house in the country, will seem a delightful change. I am sure that bread and water shared with Fanfaronade will please me far better than roast chicken and sweetmeats with anybody else. And so she went on, talk, talk, talking, until her waiting women wondered where she got it off from. But when they tried to stop her and represented that her high rank made it perfectly impossible that she should do any such thing, she would not listen and ordered them to be silent. As soon as the ambassador Fanfaronade arrived at the palace, the queen sent to fetch her daughter. All the streets were spread with carpets and the windows were full of ladies who were waiting to see the princess and carried baskets of flowers and sweetmeats 
to shower upon her as she passed. They had hardly begun to get the princess ready when a dwarf arrived, mounted upon an elephant. He came from the five fairies and brought for the princess a crown, a scepter, and a robe of golden brocade with a petticoat marvelously embroidered with butterflies' wings. They also sent a casket of jewels, so splendid that no one had ever seen anything like it before, and the queen was perfectly dazzled when she opened it. But the princess scarcely gave a glance to any of these treasures, for she thought of nothing but fanfaronade. The dwarf was rewarded with a gold piece and decorated with so many ribbons that it was hardly possible to see him at all. The princess sent to each of the fairies a new spinning wheel with a distaff of cedar wood, and the queen said she must look through her treasures and find something very charming to send them also. When the princess was arrayed in all the gorgeous things the dwarf had brought, she was more beautiful than ever, and as she walked along the streets the people cried, How pretty she is! How pretty she is! The procession consisted of the queen, the princess, five dozen other princesses, her cousins, and ten dozen who came from the neighboring kingdoms. And as they proceeded at a stately pace, the sky began to grow dark. Then suddenly the thunder growled, and rain and hail fell in torrents. The queen put her royal mantle over her head, and all the princesses did the same with their trains. May Blossom was just about to follow their example when a terrific croaking, as an immense army of crows, rooks, ravens, screech owls, and all birds of ill omen, was suddenly heard, and at the same time a huge owl skimmed up to the princess and threw over her a scarf woven of spider webs and embroidered with bats' wings. Peals of mocking laughter rang through the air, and they guessed that this was another of the fairy Carabosa's unpleasant jokes. The queen was quite terrified at such an evil omen and tried to pull the black scarf from the princess's shoulders, but it really seemed as if it must be nailed on. It clung so closely. Ah, cried the queen, can nothing appease this enemy of ours? What good was it that I sent her more than 50 pounds of sweetmeats and as much again of the best sugar, not to mention two Westphalia hams? Why, she is as angry as ever. While the queen lamented in this way, and everybody was as wet as if they had been dragged through a river, the princess still thought of nothing but the ambassador, Fanfaronade, and just at this moment he appeared before her with the king. There was a great blowing of trumpets, and all the people shouted louder than ever. Fanfaronade was not generally at a loss for something to say, but when he saw the princess, she was so much more beautiful and majestic than he had expected, that he could only stammer out a few words and entirely forgot the harangue which he had been learning for months and knew well enough to have repeated in his sleep. To gain time to remember at least part of it, he made several low bows to the princess, who on her side dropped half a dozen curtsies without stopping to think, 
and then said, to relieve his evident embarrassment, Sir Ambassador, I am sure that everything you intend to say is charming, since it is you who mean to say it. But let us make haste into the palace, as it is pouring cats and dogs, and the wicked fairy Carabos will be amused to see us all stand dripping here. When we are once under shelter, we can laugh at her. Upon this, the ambassador found his tongue, and replied gallantly that the fairy had evidently foreseen the flames that would be kindled by the bright eyes of the princess, and had sent this deluge to extinguish them. Then he offered his hand to conduct the princess, and she said softly, As you could not possibly guess how much I like you, Sir Van Farinad, I am obliged to tell you plainly that, since I saw you enter the town on your beautiful prancing horse, I have been sorry that you came to speak for another instead of for yourself. So if you think about it as I do, I will marry you instead of your master. Of course, I know you are not a prince, but I shall be just as fond of you as if you were, and we can go and live in some cozy little corner of the world and be as happy as the days are long. The ambassador thought he must be dreaming and could hardly believe what the lovely princess said. He dared not answer, but only squeezed the princess's hand until he really hurt her little finger, but she did not cry out. When they reached the palace, the king kissed his daughter on both cheeks and said, My little lambkin, are you willing to marry the great King Merlin's son? For this ambassador has come on his behalf to fetch you. If you please, sire, said the princess, dropping a curtsy. I consent also, said the queen, so let the banquet be prepared. This was done with all speed, and everybody feasted except May Blossom and Fanfaronade, who looked at one another and forgot everything else. After the banquet came a ball, and after that again a ballet, and at last they were all so tired that everyone fell asleep just where he sat. Only the lovers were as wide awake as mice, and the princess, seeing that there was nothing to fear, said to Fanfaronade, Let us be quick and run away, my dear, for we shall never have a better chance than this. Then she took the king's dagger, which was in a diamond sheath, and the queen's neck handkerchief, and gave her hand to Fanfaronade, who carried a lantern, and they ran out together into the muddy street and down to the seashore. Here they got into a little boat, in which the poor old boatman was sleeping, and when he woke up and saw the lovely princess with all her diamonds and her spider's web scarf, he did not know what to think, and obeyed her instantly when she commanded him, to set out. They could see neither moon nor stars, but in the queen's neck handkerchief there was a carbuncle which glowed like fifty torches. Where would you like to go? Fanfaronade asked the princess, but she only answered that she did not care where she went as long as he was with her. But princess, said he, I dare not take you back to King Merlin's court. He would think hanging too good for me. Oh, in that case, she answered, we had better go to Squirrel Island. It is lonely enough and too far off for anyone to follow us there. So she ordered the boatman to steer for Squirrel Island. Well, that's the end of part one and where I'm going to stop for today.
What do you think? Not the passive princess here, is she? There's no sleeping until a faded kiss for May Blossom. But I wonder if what she is doing is wise. Now, she was gifted with the ability to understand everything right away. And yet, she is dealing with the fairy, Carabos. Who is this fairy, Carabos, I wonder? This one who is deemed morose and ugly, who hides herself in a tree and speaks a foreign tongue that none can understand. Jung said that our attitude towards the unconscious, that is, the repressed, that is, the shadow, would dictate its attitude towards us. So is it possible that the disdain expressed towards Kerbos motivate her actions? Or is it necessary to have a catalyst like her in a story like this one? There's a few questions for you to contemplate while you're waiting for part two, which will be in the next program. That's it for me, Catherine Savela and Myth in the Mojave. Feel free to contact me if you have questions about today's program or mythology in general. And I encourage you to make use of the archived Myth in the Mojave programs that are available on Bandcamp. If you'd like to receive email notifications of new Myth in the Mojave programs, you can find a handy email subscribe form on the Myth in the Mojave website. Thank you very much for listening. Until next time, happy mythmaking and keep the mystery in your life alive.